Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a weekly program bringing you news of interest from a variety of sources, both international and national. This one's being recorded on the 21st of July for the listening week that begins the 22nd, and your reader's name is Susan Shirey. First, you'll be hearing two pieces about the recent SCOTUS ruling. First, from theroot.com, written by Jessica Washington, posted on the 21st. SCOTUS ruled in favor of protecting black Alabama voters. The state GOP ignored them. Alabama's Republican-led state legislature proposed a new map with only one majority black district. The Supreme Court already told them to draw two. Alabama's Republican-led state legislature has officially gone rogue, After much anticipation, Alabama released a proposal for its congressional map that appears to directly violate a recent Supreme Court voting rights decision. To back up a bit, last month, the Supreme Court ruled that Alabama's legislature violated the rights of black voters by only drafting one majority black district. The state is 27% black. The court ordered the state to redraw its congressional map to include two districts where black voters were in the majority, quote, or something quite close to it. As simple as this sounds, clearly someone over at the state legislature must have gotten their wires crossed. On Monday, the state legislature released a new map proposal that includes, you guessed it, only one black majority district. Throughout the week, there have been several proposed maps, none of which include two majority black districts. Alabama Democratic Democratic State Representative Chris England tweeted that the latest map proposal, which is being considered today, includes one congressional district that is roughly 51% black and another district that is less than 40% black. For those doing the math at home... That map is far from the two majority black districts, or close to it, mandated by the Supreme Court. Naturally, voting rights activists and Democrats are not super pleased with the results. Former United States Attorney General Eric, pardon me, I'll start. Former United States Attorney General Eric Holder called out Republican lawmakers in Alabama in a searing tweet that said. Republicans in Alabama put forth a map that both defies the Supreme Court and minimizes the power of black voters. Arrogance combined with racial animus, too typical of the shameful history of that party in that state. We remain in the fight for fairness. Maps like these diluting the power of black voters are hardly novel, Governor Ron DeSantis has waged an all-out war on black voters through racial gerrymandering in Florida. Voting rights groups sued Florida over their latest map, arguing it was racially discriminatory. 
in Alabama, it seems likely will see litigation challenging the validity of their congressional map. And for more detail on that subject, this article from the New York Times was posted on July 17th, written by Emily Cochran and Michael Wines. Alabama scrambles to redraw its voting map after a Supreme Court surprise. Dateline Montgomery, Alabama. Under orders from the Supreme Court to produce a voting map that no longer illegally dilutes the power of black voters in Alabama, the state's lawmakers are now facing a high-stakes scramble to come up with an acceptable replacement by the end of this week. A little over a month ago, pardon me, that's a little over a month after the Supreme Court's surprise ruling, the Alabama legislature will convene Monday for a special five-day session, with the Republican supermajority having given little public indication of how it plans to fulfill a mandate to craft a second district that allows black voters to elect a representative of their choice, one who could well be a Democrat. The effects of the revised map, which must be passed by Friday and approved by a federal court, could reverberate across the country with other states in the South confronting similar voting rights challenges and Republicans looking to hold onto a razor-thin majority in the U.S. House of Representatives next year. The session also comes at a pivotal moment in the debate over the constitutionality of factoring race into government decisions, as conservatives have increasingly chipped away at the 1965 Voting Rights Act and other long-standing judicial protections centered on equality and race. The eyes of the nation are looking at you, Evan Milligan, one of several Alabama residents who had challenged the legality of the map, told lawmakers during a committee meet pardon me, that's a committee hearing in Montgomery on Thursday. If you can cut out the noise, look within, you can look to history, you can make a mark in history that will set a standard for this country. Alabama has a long list of bitter disputes over the enforcement of the Voting Rights Act a landmark law born out of the civil rights movement, whose key provisions were gutted by a 2013 Supreme Court decision. Litigation forced the creation of Alabama's first majority black congressional district in 1992, and the seat has been represented by a black Democrat ever since then. But the current fight stems from lawsuits filed to oppose the map drawn after the 2020 census. In a state where 27% of the population is black, the Republican-controlled legislature packed nearly a third of the black population into that one district. The state's remaining six districts each elected a white Republican, There is little disagreement that voting in Alabama is highly polarized, but lawyers, pardon me, lawyers for the state legislature attributed the situation to politics rather than race. Parentheses. The Supreme Court ruled in 2019 that a gerrymander that discriminates against one party's voters is a political problem, not a legal one. Black Alabamians, candidates of choice, tend to lose elections in Alabama not because they are black 
or because they receive black support, but because they are Democrats, the state's lawyers wrote. And, with about 80% of black voters in Alabama identifying as Democrats or leaning toward Democratic candidates, according to the Pew Research Center, that just makes them easy prey in terms of redistricting, said Seth C. McGee, a University of Oklahoma professor who has written about political realignment in the South, who went on, and once Republicans get control, it's just difficult for them not to dominate. But a federal panel of three judges unanimously said the map had mostly, pardon me, had most likely violated the Voting Rights Act and ordered it redrawn four months before the 2022 primary elections. The Supreme Court, while agreeing to consider the challenge, allowed the map to go into effect before the November elections. Many experts expected the Supreme Court to say in the Alabama case what it essentially said in its decision outlawing affirmative action in education, making allowances to remedy discrimination against one group inevitably ends up discriminating against other groups. However, in June, the court narrowly upheld Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, the principal remaining clause of the law, which allowed outlaws any election law or rule that discriminates based on race, color, or language. That decision has already had ramifications elsewhere. A similar lawsuit is now moving forward in Louisiana, while voting rights advocates in Georgia have begun sparring with the state over whether the ruling affects similar lawsuits there. We're already showing how this opinion is going to have ripple effects, said Abba Khanna, who represented some of the Alabama plaintiffs as the head of the Elias Law Group's redistricting practice, she added, You are sending a message to states and jurisdictions. The Alabama legislature now has until Friday to create another map that gains approval from a Supreme Court and has solicited public proposals. Should the legislature fall short, the map could again be challenged leaving open the possibility that the court would draw its own map and cut out the legislature altogether. It is critical that Alabama be fairly and accurately represented in Washington, said Governor Kay Ivey, a Republican, as she formally summoned the legislature back for the special session. Our legislature knows our state better than the federal courts do, she added. But it leaves Republicans with a task that could jeopardize the electoral security of one of their own in Congress. The nonpartisan Cook Political Report now marks the once solidly Republican 1st and 2nd Congressional Districts as toss-ups, citing, quote, the presumption that one of their seats will ultimately become a Montgomery and Mobile-based black majority seat that comfortably elects a Democrat. On Thursday, multiple black Republicans spoke during the committee hearing, including Belinda Thomas, a Dale County Councilwoman and Republican Party official who later described herself as, quote, living proof that the current map made it possible for black candidates to succeed. Some residents and officials also raised concerns about diminishing the representation of rural communities and economic opportunity under some of the proposed maps. 
Democrats appeared divided over which plan to back, with some lawmakers supporting one that relies on a combination of traditionally Democratic voting blocs to create a new district in order to avoid drawing on racial lines. At least one of the plaintiffs wore a T-shirt emblazoned with their preferred map, which would enshrine the 18 counties of Alabama's Black Belt that stretch of historically rich soil that fueled cotton plantations worked by slave labor into two districts with at least 50% of the black voting population. I want myself and my community to have a seat at the table rather than be on the menu, said Shalela Dowdy, a Mobile resident and one of the plaintiffs. But notably absent from the public discussion Thursday was any plan backed by the Republican supermajority, State Rep. Chris Pringle, Republican of Mobile, said that a final map would be shared before a committee meeting Monday, although Democrats balked at being left out of the process and at the public getting little time to review a final plan. This is a really tortured process, said State Rep. Chris England, Democrat of Tuscaloosa. He added that, quote, everybody else has been presenting the maps that they believe best represent the state of Alabama, give everybody an opportunity to be represented, but the supermajority has not. Pringle said that the committee tasked with overseeing the creation of the new map had been overwhelmed with a number of submissions, including from as far away as France and New Zealand. A little over a dozen had been made public online or in a hearing with England sharing a few more maps circulated among the committee on Twitter on Friday evening. This is talking about last week, Friday. We have been pretty much overwhelmed, said Pringle. Next, from International News, this one I have archived a week ago or so. This comes from The Guardian and was published originally in June on the 22nd. Kenya to launch Biggest School Meals Program in Africa. Starting in Nairobi, the initiative aims to provide daily lunches for 4 million primary school children and to eliminate the shame of hunger. The largest school meals program in Africa is to begin in Nairobi this August in a drive to, quote, eliminate the shame of hunger in Kenya. Ten new kitchens now under construction will provide 400,000 daily lunches for children in 225 primary schools and early childhood development centers in the Kenyan capital. The program will start on 28th of August, the first day of the autumn term, and the kitchens will employ 3,500 people. The $8.6 million initiative is a collaboration between Nairobi County and Food for Education, a Kenyan not-for-profit organization that already supplies meals to 150,000 primary school children in the city. According to Save the Children, 26% of children in Kenya are living with stunted growth due to malnutrition. At the launch of the program on Tuesday, William Ruto, the president of Kenya, said, We must eliminate the shame of hunger in our country. We will be deliberate and focused in ensuring successful implementation of the school feeding program. 
The greatest indignity is for our children to go to school and fast because of lack of food. Ruto said the government has allocated 5 billion Kenyan shillings, which is approximate $36 million, to extend the existing national feeding program from 1.6 million children to 4 million, but promised to increase the allocation if more counties committed funding. We are going to match counties who have a plan on school feeding program, shilling for shilling, and if we do that, we can actually feed 8 million children in our schools, he said. Suzanne Selentoy, the county executive of Nairobi City County, said meetings with teachers and parents during last year's election campaign revealed that most school children in the city go without lunch, damaging their ability to learn. Child hunger also poses a significant obstacle to school enrollment and attendance in the, count, pardon me, in the country. We recognize the critical link between nutrition and learning, and that is why the county has institutionalized the school feeding program. We expect improvement in attendance and performance in public schools, said Silentoy. Food for Education was started in 2012 by the Kenyan nutritionist Wawira Njira, pardon me again, that's Wawira Njiru from a makeshift kitchen that employed one cook and produced lunch for 25 children in Ruiru Primary School. Said Njiru, the goal at the beginning was to feed 100 children. As the numbers grew over the years, I became more ambitious with a goal to feed one million children, but I didn't know how it would happen. Njiro said she was inspired to provide cheap and nutritious lunches to school children from poor rural households and informal settlements after witnessing poverty and inequality among her classmates when she was growing up in Ruiru town on the outskirts of Nairobi. I went to Australia for my undergraduate degree, and while there, I fundraised and raised $250. I used that to construct the first kitchen and purchase the food that kicked off the program. With this new partnership with the city government, the number of children served a day will increase to 400,000. Furthermore, as additional partnerships are formed, we anticipate reaching 500,000 children, possibly by the end of next year, these developments bring us significantly closer to achieving the one million children a day goal, she said. As well as improving children's health, it has improved enrollment rates. She said, we have witnessed significant growth of 30 to 40 percent in enrollment in schools we partner with. The kitchens will be powered by green energy using steam gas technology and will also use eco-briquettes. Technology has also played a vital role in the growth of food for education. Each child is given a wristband called Tap to Eat, which is linked to a virtual wallet that parents use to prepay 15 shillings, equivalent of 11 cents, for each meal. That partnership with parents is very important because when they chip in, they also feel that they are contributing to feeding their children, said Njiru. The system also helps parents track their children and understand whether their child is skipping school. The county government will also use the technology to subsidize the cost of each meal, 
Salantoy said parents will pay five shillings while the government will top up twenty-five shillings for each meal. Salantoy added that the county government will have a budget of one point two billion shillings, approximate of eight point six million dollars, set aside annually for the school feeding program. The partnership between Food for Education, and that's spelled with the number four, and the county government of Nairobi will also create employment opportunities and a market for farmers. In this particular project, we will involve the communities and employ about two thousand people, as well as provide a market for the food produced in the communities, which will improve their economic outcomes," said Silentoy. I'll move now to theroot.com for some articles on current events. This, written by Angela Johnson, published July twelfth, one of Octavia Butler's best-known works is now an opera. Science fiction and spirituality combine in the opera adaptation of *Parable of the Sower*. In nineteen ninety-three, Octavia E. Butler's *Parable of the Sower*. A critically acclaimed novel centered around a teenage girl with the uncontrollable ability to feel the pain of others was published. Butler, who is considered a pioneering black female science fiction writer, delved into themes of racial injustice, women's rights, and climate change. She passed away in two thousand and six, but now, thirty years after the book was published, the opera, titled Octavia E. Butler's Parable of the Sower. Has its New York City premiere at Lincoln Center on July 13th. The story, set in 2024, describes a post-apocalyptic world affected by climate change, an economic crisis, and socio-economic inequality. Sounds a little too much like reality, right? Singer-songwriter Toshi Regan certainly thinks so. She worked alongside her mother, musician, and activist Bernice Johnson Reagan, to bring Butler's timely story to the stage. Reagan has previously collaborated with artists such as Michelle Decioselo and Nana Hendrix. In a recent interview with NBC News, she said her opera is hitting the stage at just the right time. She said. I think that's the thing that turns us towards the world that Octavia imagines. People are reading her books and seeing that somebody saw this thirty years ago, which means we, in some way, have been living it. In the back of our minds, a lot of us have been worried about where we are now. Shanta Thake, chief artistic director at Lincoln Center, agrees that the opera is something audiences need to see. She told NBC News, "The parable is this hour. The book is a prophecy in a lot of ways, and it is set in 2024. Parables is a warning and holds a lot of beautiful lessons. And Reagan hopes one of those lessons audience take away from the opera is the importance of community." She said, "You don't have to get along in some mystical, magical way, but you could have the mutual respect." Of upholding a practice of community. Next, written by Candice McDuffie, published on the twenty-first. Skin lightening remains disturbingly prevalent in the black community. 
A new study confirms that black people still use skin lightening products the most. A new study by Northwestern University Medicine published in the International Journal of Women's Dermatology found that the majority of those who use skin lightening products in the United States are black. Co-authors of the report include Dr. Karishma Daftari, Daftari pardon me, Maxwell Shramuk, and Latufia Muhammad. For the study, 455 people were surveyed, with 238 of them being black. Around 21.3% said they use skin lightening products. Nearly 75% of them said the agents they used were for certain skin ailments, like hyperpigmentation, melasma, and acne. However, the rest admitted that they used the products to intentionally lighten their skin. Dr. Rupal Kundu, founder and director of the Northwestern Medicine Center for Ethnic Skin and Hair, stated, The most surprising finding was the lack of awareness of ingredients in products being purchased over the counter and their potential detrimental effects. These products are brought from pardon me, that's bought from chain grocery stores, community-based stores, or even online, and do not undergo the same type of regulation as large chain store or prescription products. In 2020, the FDA received disturbing reports of grave side effects from the use of skin lightening products that contain hydroquinone, some of which include facial swelling, skin rashes, and discoloration of skin. In response, the FDA warned customers not to use these products because of the harm they have been known to cause. Kundu understands that colorism, or better treatment people receive based on skin tone, is the reason why skin lightening products are still being used. There is this perception that having lighter skin within a group Southeast Asian or African populations, for example, is looked upon more favorably and manifests by making someone more attractive to a mate or more likely to get a job, explained Kundu. The belief is that having lighter skin is tied to personal and professional success. As dermatologists, we hope to understand the cultural and societal influences that impact skin health and treatment of skin disease. In addition, the study revealed that most consumers who use skin lighteners don't discuss their decision with a medical provider. Next one is written by Jessica Washington, published July 12th. Black men need to pay attention to this new skin cancer study. Exclamation point. The American Academy of Dermatology found that black men have a higher risk of death from melanoma. There's a long-standing myth that black people don't need sunscreen, but this latest finding could encourage black men to start lathering up this summer. A new study published in the American Academy of Dermatology on Tuesday found that black men had a higher risk of death from melanoma than other racial groups. For those who don't know, melanoma is a type of skin cancer. Although it's less common than other types of skin cancers, it's also more aggressive. 
The recent study tracked over 200,000 cases of male patients diagnosed with cutaneous invasive melanoma between 2004 and 2018. Although white men are more likely to be diagnosed with melanoma, the study found that the five-year survival rate for black men hovered at 51.7%, which was lower than any other racial group. On the flip side, the survival rate for white men was around 75.1%. Previous studies have shown that, in general, men have a higher rate of death from melanoma. The reasons for these disparities are debated. Some experts suggest it has something to do with estrogen or other hormonal variables. Another potential explanation is that studies have shown that men are less likely to use sunscreen than women. Men are also less likely to seek medical care. The underlying reasons for the racial disparities in mortality are also still an open question. Access to health care could be a factor here. The study found that black men were likely to have private insurance. Skin color could be another factor. Dermatologists and other medical professionals often have a harder time diagnosing melanoma in people with darker skin tones. That means black patients may struggle to get early diagnosis that could save their lives. We still don't have a firm grasp on why black men are more likely to die from melanoma, but increased research on this issue is undoubtedly an essential first step. Next article was published on the 21st, written by Angela Johnson, still reading from TheRoot.com. Vice President Harris speaks out against Florida's controversial new black history curriculum. VP Harris condemns revisionist history during her keynote address at Delta Sigma Theta Sorority, Incorporated's National Convention. This week, the Florida Board of Education approved controversial new standards for teaching black history in the state's public schools. The move has already received criticism from the president of the NAACP and Florida's Teachers Union. Now, Vice President Kamala Harris is the latest to denounce the decision. During her keynote address at Delta Sigma Theta Sorority, Incorporated's National Convention on Wednesday, the vice president spoke out against the disturbing new set of standards, which includes teaching, quote, how slaves develop skills which, in some instances, could be applied for their personal benefit. Speaking of our children, extremists pass book bans to prevent them from learning our true history. Book bans in this year of our Lord, 2023. And while they do this, check it out, they push forward revisionist history, she said in a speech shared with The Root, and went on, They insult us in an attempt to gaslight us, and we will not stand for it. The vice president also took time to highlight the Biden-Harris administration's ongoing commitment to fight for Americans' fundamental freedoms, including the right to vote and women's bodily autonomy. And she called on her audience to join in the fight to protect future generations. Here is more from her speech. Let us continue to stand together and fight for what is right, because we know it is right to fight for the freedom of every woman to control her own body, not her government. It is right to fight for a future in which every person can live free from discrimination and hate. It is right to fight for safe communities, 
It is right to fight for paid leave and clean water and affordable child care. It is right to fight to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act and the Freedom to Vote Act. It is right to fight against book bans and the truth. So, Delta Sigma Theta, let us fight, fueled by the love of our children. Let us fight, fueled by the love of our country. And let us fight with the knowledge and the faith that when we fight, we win. The next grouping of articles come from the New York Times. This from the children's book section. Written by Cynthia Greenlee, posted July 7th. How do you spell discrimination? Magnolia Cox speaks only one sentence in a picture book about her trip to the 1936 National Spelling Bee. Zayla Avant-Garde, the 2021 champ, writes volumes. In 1936, the 8th grader, Magnolia Cox, became the first black student to win the Akron, Ohio, citywide spelling bee. Buoyed by community support, Cox traveled on a segregated train to Washington, D.C., and entered the arena for the national competition through a back door. When she reached the final five, the judges committed an act of racial perfidy. The word they gave her, nemesis, was not on the approved list. Cox spelled it N-E-M-A-S-I-S and was eliminated. The terrible prospect of black excellence besting Anglo-Saxon smarts was narrowly avoided. Spelling bees fit neatly into the idea of American meritocracy and are increasingly a vehicle for immigrant industry. Winning requires an alchemy of aspiration, labor, and talent, plus a dash of good fortune. There is something stirring about the public display of potential, the ability to master anxiety in a moment that demands perfection, and the promise of youth. The picture book, How Do You Spell Unfair, Magnolia Cox and the National Spelling Bee, published by Candlewick, for ages 7 to 10, by the veteran children's nonfiction author Carol Boston Weatherford, functions both as history and as anti-racist reading that will inspire discussion in homes and libraries. Weatherford's, pardon me, Weatherford's depiction of Cox's journey pairs facts gleaned from newspaper accounts with directive questions, like, can you spell discrimination? It is not subtle, but at a time when many Americans will offer, pardon me, will offer any explanation for racism but racism, there is value in being on the nose. Even in seemingly straightforward games of achievement like spelling bees, The best and the brightest don't always secure the victory, and racism can curdle the whole affair. Cox and other black children had to continually demonstrate the humanity and intellect of their race. African-American, quote, self-improvement via education was a long-standing imperative, reflected in W.E.B. Du Bois's The Brownies book which featured images of neatly coiffed black children playing the piano and news items about their middle-class pursuits and academic triumphs. As 
How do you spell unfair? Hughes very carefully to the scant historical record. Cox speaks only one sentence in the book. It's her struggle, but muted. Frank Morrison's illustrations, in which her physical size fluctuates, provide the emotional core of the story. Drawn large, Cox swells with joy. Drawn, pardon me, drawn small, she is ensnared in a gargantuan system of arbitrary barriers and migrating goalposts. The deep and somber color palette conveys both cultural richness and the tragedy of a dream derailed. Almost a century later, Zayla, avant-garde, cannot be silenced so effectively. In 2021, avant-garde became the first African-American to win the script's national spelling bee. The first black winner in 1998 hailed from Jamaica and reminded fans that spelling was the least of her skills. She holds Guinness World Records for multiple ball dribbling feats. Or I could probably pronounce that as multiple ball dribbling feats. Now 16, she has added author to her accomplishments, publishing the picture book Words of Wonder from Z to A by Doubleday, illustrated with the vivid textured art of Kaisha Morris, and the memoir It's Not Bragging If It's True, How to Be Awesome at Life, written with Marty Dumas. These books are the product of a profoundly focused, self-aware young woman who seems to have largely missed out on that period that robs many American girls of confidence by their tweens. Avant-garde may rehash narratives of industry. For her, nothing seems impossible, with will and practice. But she recognizes that the biggest hurdle is the hard work of becoming one's self. She writes in Words of Wonder... U is a short and sweet word. Z and A stand for Zyla and avant-garde, which she defines respectively as mighty, powerful, and to look up and see the moon, then build a rocket ship and go to Saturn. If that seems too self-absorbed, in It's Not Bragging If It's True, she shares tips for embracing your personal brand of weirdness and greatness, while showing up for community. Imagine that every new person you meet is your grandmother. Shed worries about not being normal. Pick tough opponents for life's challenges. Avant-garde's insights feel not only fresh, but also age-neutral. She compliments them in Words of Wonder with quotes from luminaries including Barack Obama, Rumi, Sitting Bull, even characters from the Disney film Lilo and Stitch all in notably smaller type than her own thoughts. This is not to minimize elders' wisdom or to suggest she's their peer, but to indicate that she's a young person with something to say. Many things, in fact. And unlike Magnolia Cox, she has a platform on which to say them. And again, the title of that book being reviewed there is How Do You Spell Unfair? Magnolia Cox and the National Spelling Bee. Another book review, this one nonfiction. This may be edited for length. How Hubert Humphrey Tried to Make Minneapolis and America Less Racist. In Into the Bright Sunshine, 
Samuel G. Friedman makes the case that Humphrey was part of the vanguard in the fight for civil rights. This was posted July 13th and written by Khalil Gibran Muhammad. Into the Bright Sunshine, Young Hubert Humphrey and the Fight for Civil Rights, written by Samuel G. Friedman. Minneapolis may be the city most notorious for anti-black police violence in the world. In 2020, following the murder of George Floyd by the police officer Derek Chauvin, tens of millions of people across the U.S. protested for civil rights in a city once considered a national model of racial racial liberalism in a state whose citizens are thought to be Minnesota nice. Today, Minneapolis is a poster city for extreme racial disparities. One of the top 100 largest metropolitan areas, Minneapolis ranks 99th in the gap between black and white earnings. In June, the Department of Justice cited this statistic in its investigation of the Minneapolis Police Department. From routine instances of excessive and sometimes deadly use of force to everyday racist taunts, the police department disproportionately abused blacks and Native Americans with little to no accountability. Reflecting on these patterns, the U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland said, They made what happened to George Floyd possible. And yet, eight decades ago, as the journalist Samuel G. Friedman writes, In his riveting new biography, Into the Bright Sunshine, the Minneapolis mayor and future presidential candidate Hubert Humphrey made some progress in dismantling prejudice in the city's police department. Little remains in Minneapolis of the trailblazing legacy of Humphrey, an exceptional white liberal for his time. He defended the rights of minorities during the second coming of the Ku Klux Klan, the rise of fascism in America, and the ascent of Jim Crow inspired Nazism in Germany. He is better known as the two-term U.S. Senator and Vice President to Lyndon Johnson, who lost the president to Richard Nixon in 1968. But two decades earlier, at the Democratic National Convention, he became a singular figure in the party's move away from its white, supremacist, southern roots toward the cause of racial equality. Long before the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts of the mid-60s, Friedman argues, Humphrey led Minneapolis to become, quote, virtually the only city in America where a victim of racial discrimination could count on the government as an ally. Friedman's book shows how this happened. In a superbly written tale of moral and political courage for present-day readers who find themselves in similarly dark times, By the mid-twenties, during his teens, South Dakota was awash in ruined farms and bank failures, where he was raised in Dolan, South Dakota. A prelude to the Great Depression that hit Midwestern farmers before big city bankers. Out of the economic devastation and exposure to liberal and leftist professors at the University of Minnesota in the late thirties, he became a lifelong New Dealer. Drawn by a paid graduate program to Louisiana State University in 1939, Humphrey came face-to-face with the realities of American racism. In Baton Rouge, black people made up a third of the population. 
the usual deprivations abounded, few indoor toilets and scarcely any electricity. Black farmers were excluded from white welfare in the form of New Deal agricultural loans and subsidies. The LSU sociology professor, Rudolf Herberl, pardon my mispronunciation, who was a German emigre, made it plain that what was happening to Jews in Europe mirrored the hate and oppression Humphrey could see closer to home. Heberl said, Out of this group, there wouldn't be over two of you that would have resisted Hitler, looking around at the seminar table. The implications for Humphrey were crystal clear. The Jew in Germany was the black in America. After returning to Minneapolis, Humphrey chose to enter politics to battle racism and homegrown anti-Semitism. By the mid-1930s, Minneapolis hosted a thriving Christian nationalist movement called the Silver Legion, whose members were known as Silver Shirts, copycats of Hitler's brown shirts, and antecedents of today's Proud Boys. They stood for, quote, returning American blacks to slavery, writes Friedman, who went on, and disenfranchising, segregating, and finally sterilizing American Jews. Humphrey ran for mayor in 43, lost, and tried again two years later. The second time around, the key issue in the race was an explosion of violence against Jewish teenagers, some attackers chanting Heil Hitler, just as the mass killings in Europe had become front-page news. The incumbent said and did little. Humphrey promised to fight, and he won in a landslide. Friedman tells a surprising and rare history of black and Jewish Americans fighting against racism and anti-Semitism, often side by side, in a northern city before the civil rights era. His brilliant profiles of these local heroes are gripping, and in many ways, the spine of the book. Into the Bright Sunshine focuses especially on two consequential foot soldiers in Minneapolis's racial justice movement who pushed Humphrey to live up to his values. Sam Shiner, an attorney and jazz pianist who led the Minnesota Jewish Council, and Cecil Newman, a founding publisher of the superb Minneapolis spokesman, who agitated against local mob violence, among other things. Before becoming mayor, Humphrey met with Newman and read his paper, which offered him praise for unusually fair treatment of Negroes, in quotes. Two months into his term, in August 1945, two black women, friends of Newman's, were wrongfully arrested during a raid of the Dreamland Cafe at Chic Haven, pardon me, Chic Haven for interracial couples. In the middle of the night, Newman called the mayor down to police headquarters to do something about it. Humphrey got the women released, sent some officers to bias training, and demoted their bigoted commander. In 1947, he fought for and secured the passage of an anti-discrimination employment law. The measure caught the notice of a half-dozen other cities. Humphrey also created the Mayor's Council on Human Relations to document and investigate discrimination against racial and religious minorities. At every turn, Humphrey faced a fierce backlash. Menacing, mes- pardon me, menacing messages poured in from local Nazis. One frigid night, Humphrey was fumbling for his keys in his front door when three shots rang out in his direction. 
His dog, Tippy, began to bark. Humphrey survived unscathed, but two weeks later, Tippy vanished. Humphrey's principled stand for multiracial democracy in Minneapolis quickly elevated his national profile. In 1948, he was invited to speak at the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia. Not since 1924, when Democrats debated the merits of fighting the Klan, or 1860, when they divided over slavery, had the issue of race so threatened to destroy the party. As liberals pushed to end poll taxes and pass anti-lynching legislation, Southern delegates invoked states' rights and rebelled. Into the Bright Sunshine appears on the 75th anniversary of Humphrey's convention speech, two weeks after the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action in higher education. Minneapolis is no longer the capital of anti-Semitism, as the journalist Kerry McWilliams called it in 1946. But Humphrey's ascent to the national stage was Minneapolis's loss. Decades of less courageous political work unwound the progress he and others made. Hatred against Jews is on the rise nationally, and the city remains an example of the unfinished work of ending systemic racism in America. This author, Khalil Gibran Muhammad, is a professor of history, race, and public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School and the author of The Condemnation of Blackness. Next one comes from the food section of the New York Times. A pie shop on Chicago's south side deserves more than dessert. With her first brick-and-mortar bakery, Justice of the Pies, the pastry chef Maya Camille Broussard focuses on creativity and inclusivity for people with disabilities. This is written by Kayla Stewart, reporting from Chicago, posted on July 11th. The south side of Chicago brims with inimitable African-American culture and history. And the pastry chef Maya Camille Broussard is adding her brand of sweetness to the place where she was born and raised. In June, Ms. Broussard opened the first brick-and-mortar store of her longtime delivery and wholesale pie business, called Justice of the Pies. The shop, in a former dentist's office in Avalon Park, one of the South Side's many historic, predominantly African-American neighborhoods, serves Ms. Broussard's inventive pies and pastries, such as her calling cards, a blue cheese praline pear pie, and a strawberry basil key lime pie. Along with unorthodox items like her salted caramel peach pie, and a deep dish chilaquiles quiche. Wow. Those sound great, pardon me. Ms. Broussard, who lost 75% of her hearing in a childhood accident, may be the industry's most prominent hard-of-hearing black pastry chef. She has gained a following for her pies through social media, pop-ups, and appearances on the Netflix competition show Bake Squad. I realized that being a member of the deaf and hard-of-hearing community actually gave me a superpower, she said, and that superpower includes a heightened sense of smell and taste. Ms. Broussard chose her bakery's location in hopes of encouraging other chefs and entrepreneurs to join her. 
I want to force people who don't look like me to come to the South Side if they want my pies, she said. I want to force people to come to a neighborhood that deserves private investment, a neighborhood that has a blighted corridor, a neighborhood that has empty storefronts. Zella Palmer, an author and professor at Dillard University in New Orleans, who grew up on the south side of Chicago, said neighborhoods like Avalon Park deserve more inventive black-owned businesses. There's a huge pride in the community to see this gleaming pie shop, she said. This is a pie shop that looks like it could be in Brooklyn or on Magazine Street in New Orleans, but it's here. Several of the shop's counters are 32 inches high, meeting the height standards of the American Disabilities Act and making them accessible for wheelchair users. Each section of the shop has a different floor tile texture, which helps patrons with limited sight who use a walking cane navigate the store. How can I be an ambassador for people living with disabilities and have a space that is inaccessible, she said. Signs in the shop carry Braille inscriptions, and language is designed to be inclusive, too. Parentheses. In the bathroom, there are personal hygiene products rather than feminine hygiene products. A service store that has a bell and a flashlight allows Miss Broussard to remain aware of important deliveries. Miss Broussard started Justice of the Pies in 2014, naming it for her father, Stephen Broussard, a criminal justice lawyer and longtime activist. She had a complicated relationship with him and has sought healing through the bakery. Mr. Broussard displayed a predilection for pies, convincing a young Miss Broussard, an initial skeptic, to give them a chance. For several years, she operated in different businesses and spaces, while also creating programs to address food insecurity, including teaching young people on the South Side what she describes as self-sufficiency skills, such as how to budget, make a grocery list, and follow a recipe. Ms. Broussard communicates by reading lips, which requires a level of effort that can slow down her pie-baking process. To keep up with demand, the pastry chef keeps her head down while working and hears ambient sound rather than what a person might be saying to her, leading some customers to think she was ignoring them. One even stormed out, swearing at her before leaving. She is eager to push the boundaries with her new menu, which will debut in full in September. She talks about including items beyond her pies to round it out, like the lunchroom cookie. Her play on a buttery sugar cookie once served in the city's public schools. She is tinkering with a tuna melt with sun-dried tomatoes, fig jam, olives, and manchego cheese. She says, when people are willing to play with me and engage with what I'm creating, it makes me feel good because it's like, okay, I'm doing something crazy, but it's working. Justice of the Pies can be found, if you're in Chicago, at 8655 South Blackstone Avenue or on their website, justiceofthepies.com. I believe that brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is made possible by the William O'Rourke Foundation. 
Providing financial support to organizations devoted to promoting vision services. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.